Um, God, we thank you so much that we can join together again here this morning, that we can stop in whatever weeks we've had, that we can come here and hear your word. We ask, Lord, that this morning you would challenge us and that you would change us and that we would leave as different people to the ones that we walked in us. Help us in this, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. I feel like it is a universal thing that for people everywhere, we just hate pointless stuff. If you've ever been in a meeting that was pointless, you felt the frustration in that. If you've ever driven somewhere and the shops were closed or there was no longer the shops you were looking for, it's frustrating. If you've ever just spent a day where you've done nothing and it was pointless, it's a frustrating thing for all of us to be a part of pointless stuff. However, if it's happening at a distance, sometimes it can actually be funny to look at that stuff. So this week I stumbled across this, well, it's not really an article, but a BuzzFeed post that was the 31 most pointless things of all time. So for our enjoyment here this morning, I thought we'd pick a couple. So here are my favourites out of this list. The first one is this one, a pole in a parking lot that says, beware of pole when reversing. That's pretty pointless. That's kind of funny because it's not happening to us. The next one, this one's also good. It's a bus stop. You know, that looks nice, except that it seems like built into the bus station, the bus stop sign is the fact that no services stop here. The next one, though, is the best one of all, and I don't know if it needs explanation. <laughs> sign not in use. Now, these things we can all laugh at, but the reason we can laugh at them is because that pole is not in our parking lot, and that sign is not on our street, and that bus stop is not our bus stop, right? Like, we can enjoy pointless stuff because it's not happening to us, but when something pointless happens to us, well, then the frustration rises. It's pretty annoying. Now, now the interesting thing is, while Ben at the start of the service said that we join with 10,000s and 10,000s around the world, the interesting thing is that right at this moment in Australia right now, the majority of our country, as of this moment, are either asleep or at the shops or having coffee or doing something else, and the majority of our country think that what we're doing here is pointless. Right? Like, we get that, don't we? We are a minority here. And not just in our country, but in our world, people right around the world right now are doing something else, living it up, thinking that what we are doing when we gather together this morning is, in fact, pointless. So the question we want to ask this morning is, are they right? Is the majority of the world right when they think that what we're doing here is pointless? Are they right? And if they're not right, what is the point of church? What is the purpose of meeting together? What is the meaning behind this? Why do we do this week in, week out? Why ultimately are we here this morning and not asleep or at the beach or at the shops? Well, well, the curious thing is, as we get into Ephesians, what we find is that Paul actually shows the church here what their point is, what their purpose is. So if you have your Bibles there, have them open, because Paul begins, actually he continues his letter to these people in verse 11, and this is what he says. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
What's the point? What's the purpose of this? What is the purpose of church and the point of church? Well, what we're going to see today is that actually the purpose of the church, the point of the church, the meaning of the church lies in what God is doing in the world. Our purpose is God's purpose. Our point is that God makes us meaningful. Our meaning is tied up in God's meaning. Our purpose ultimately is God's purpose. And we see that in this passage here. God is doing a couple of things. He's bringing people near and he's bringing people into a community. That's what God does here. right? And he says to these people first and foremost, he says, remember what you once were. Remember what you once were. Remember that you were outcasts to society and outsiders to God. Right? Remember, that's, that's where you were, outcast to society and outsiders to God. So they were out, outcast to society. So they were the Gentiles. Paul says, remember, at one point you were called the uncircumcised. Now, I know that in schoolyards today, there are many words that we call people who don't have friends. One of them's not uncircumcised. In fact, if you heard that, there's probably more problems than just the fact that there's someone who doesn't have any friends. But this back in the day was a pretty powerful word to call people because it insinuated they were outcasts, they were scum, right? Because they were Gentiles. So you had the Jews, they were what they would call the circumcision, they were God's people, that they were the promised people. Then there were the Gentiles, and the Gentiles to the Jew were just complete scum, right? In fact, they built in social laws to their society to kind of prove this point. They thought across the board that Gentiles were the fuel to the fires of hell. Right? Like, this is not just paying them out. This is what they thought across the board. The Gentiles' purpose and meaning in life was to fuel the fires of hell. Then, on top of that, the, the Jews actually had this rule in place, like this social rule. And this isn't biblical, but this is just where it's come from. They had this social rule in place that if there was a Gentile who was having a baby and you were the only person around and you were a Jew, you wouldn't help out. You wouldn't help out because they, they didn't think the Gentiles deserved to live. That's the divide that was in place. The Gentiles were outcasts to society, right? And, and that meant that they were outcasts religiously, they were outcasts economically, they were outcasts to the Jewish society. Paul says, remember this. And then remember, too, that you were outsiders to God, right? And the words that he uses there in, chapter, in, in verse 12, they were without hope and without God. Without hope and without God. Now, this is a big thing to be without hope and without God. They had nothing to look forward to. Nothing, no greater hope of something better. No understanding of God, no questions to answers they had. And so you see the result of that in their lives. They lived it up. They did whatever they want. They eat, they drink, they be merry because today is all that I know. I don't know what's happening tomorrow. I'm just going to live it up today. And then you see when they do that, and then after a while their brain kicks in and they go, okay, so what is the purpose and the meaning of life? They search, but they find no answers because they're without hope and they're without God. They don't know why they exist. They don't know the meaning. They don't know the purpose. Now, now it's a dark place to be in to be without hope and without God. It's a desperate situation to be without hope and without God. Maybe today you've come here and, and in some ways you're searching for answers. You're looking for hope, looking for God. But even if you're not, we know in our world, it's not, you don't have to look too far to see people without hope and without God and just how dark that position is. I mean, uh, we said this a couple of months ago. I think the, one of the worst examples of this is in non-Christian funerals 
whether it's for Les Murray, the soccer commentator, or Phil Hughes, the cricketer a few years ago that we see on TV or whatever else it is, people without hope and without God, and it's a desperate situation. They're searching for answers, and they've got none. And they're saying things like in the the hardest moments of their lives, we know you're looking down on us. We know you're in a better place. But they don't know because they're without hope and without God. This is what it looks like to be outsiders to God. And Paul says, remember that this is what you once were. Remember that you were outcast to society and outsiders to God. And as we look around today too, we should see this as well and recognize this is a desperate situation to be in. It shouldn't anger us that people are trying to find meaning in this world. That's natural. Instead, it should move us because it moved God. And we see that in verse 13. Paul says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He says God did something about this. He reversed the outcast to society and the outsiders to God. He brought people near. And this is what we start to see. This is what God is doing in this world. He is bringing people near. He is giving people a hope who had no hope. He is giving people a concrete understanding of God and and why we exist in this world who previously had none. He's reversing the fact that they were outcasts and outsiders. So first of all, he's bringing them into himself. Jesus is doing that. As he lived and died and rose again, he did that so that people could know they can have a hope in God. Right? I mean, we saw that last week in chapter 2. Paul says, you were dead in your sins. You were dead because of our sin, because of our ignorance of God, our rejection of God. Because we've said to God, we don't need you or want you and we're not going to do what you say. We were dead in our sins and we deserve death because of our sins. But Christ, because of his great love for us, in grace, saved us. He made us alive, right? And he did that by becoming death for us. It's the great exchange where Jesus died to take our place and he gave us life. It's the great exchange and in Jesus we can have hope. This is what he was doing. He was bringing people near. He gave people who previously had no hope and he gave them a hope previously who knew nothing about God and he gave them an understanding of God. If you're here today and you're searching We hope you can see there's answers in Jesus. He's the answer. He's the hope that we have. He's the understanding, the ideas. He's why why we know why we exist in the world. And so what we see is that God is bringing people in. But God's not simply bringing people in. He's also bringing outcasts into society. And as we keep reading, we actually see this. And it's crazy how he does this. So notice how Jesus says now, or Paul says now, you are now in a community. Right, catch how he says this. We pick it up in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers and outcasts, 
but fellow citizens with God's people. And also members of his household build on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as as the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Jesus, in his death, brought outsiders to himself. That's what he did, right? That's what God was doing in this world. That's why Jesus entered this world, to to give us a hope, to give us a concrete understanding of God, to give us God. But as he did this, he also brought outcasts into society. The language Paul uses there. I mean, he says he took two groups and he made them one. Now they're body, now they're a family. Now, we have to see how incredible this is, right? Because he's speaking about Jews and Gentiles. They hated each other. This is like today saying to North Korea and South Korea, you just simply have to get along, right? I don't know if that's going to happen. There's so much baggage there, years of hate there, generations of hurt there. Like saying to the Israelites and Palestinians today, all right, you just, you just need to get along. Thousands of years of history. But, but this is what Paul is saying here. Jesus, when he brought outsiders in, actually created a community. And why did he create a community? He created now his people who were to encourage and equip each other to be on about what God is doing in this world. He created a people. He commissioned that people to do what God is doing in this world. That's what the people so important for because they're doing what God is doing in this world. They're achieving God's people. They're now bringing people in. But the question is, what's that going to look like on the ground? Because you've got Jews who won't even help Gentiles when they're having birth. So how's it going to work with these group now hanging out together under one building? Well, I guess we say they just have to love each other. right? They just have to love each other. So, So what does it mean to actually love each other in this space? Jews, Gentiles, men, women, old, young, how are they all supposed to get along? Well, if we look around, there's a few options that we can have. The first option that we have is that love is a feeling. This is what we get if we look into culture, into our society. Um, Generally, this is what they say, that love is a feeling. It's the deep down movements in your stomach, maybe not too deep, but the movements within you, the warm and fuzzy feelings where you wear rose-coloured glasses and the person can do no wrong, you feel love for them. If we were to critique that, though, we even, I mean, socially can understand that doesn't work. When people get a breakup or even get divorces and just say, well, it's just because we didn't love each other anymore, right? That's what they're feeling, the, the saying, the feeling didn't work. So, so we've got to move on from that. What if it's not primarily a feeling? What is it? Well, some of us would say then love is a choice. In fact, this is often actually come about because of our arguments against the fact that love isn't a feeling. So we say love is a choice. I've signed up to this before, um, saying, you know, you've got to choose to love. I think there's a book called Love is a Verb. You can look around a little bit. People say that love is a choice. This week, though, I mean, this is what I thought before this week. Uh, I went to a conference this week, and a guy called Mark Badley was there. Who, He's a lecturer at Queensland Theological College, the Bible college in the city. And he was saying, um, the Bible actually doesn't tell us that love is a choice. And he went to 1 Corinthians 13 to to show this, where it says, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, you can sell all your possessions and give them to the poor, but if if you don't have love, you gain nothing. You know, you can be a martyr, Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians 13. You can be burnt, but if you have not love, you gain nothing. 
Notice what Paul's saying there, you can choose to love and not have love. A guy called D.A. Carson, who's written a, a bunch of different books, he's pretty smart, he uses this illustration. So imagine you overhear a husband and a wife talking to each other, and the husband says to the wife, in all seriousness, I despise you. I can't stand you. Actually, no one can stand you. You smell, you're annoying, you're not fun to be around, but I bought you flowers and I got you chocolates and I'm going to do the dishes tonight. Now, who wants to be married to that? No one, right? You can choose to be loving and still actually be a horrible person. So love has to be something more than a feeling or a choice. So what is it? Well, what we actually see in Ephesians is that love is a connection. Love is a connection. That's what Paul says here. He doesn't say to the Jews, now you simply have to feel love towards the Gentiles. He doesn't say to the Gentiles, now you just have to choose to love the Jews, even though they haven't helped you give birth for years. No, now he speaks of something different. He says, no, now there is a connection going on. Christ has made the two become one. He has made something new here. It's a body. It's a family. Right? It's actually the same language he's going to use later on when he speaks of husbands and wives in chapter 5. Jesus made two groups and he made them one. So now he says, don't just feel love towards each other. Don't just choose to love each other. Now change your attitude to the people around you because this is no longer strangers and foreigners. This is family. This is the people of God. This is body. This is an extension of yourself. When you look around at church and there's people that you might not get along with for whatever reason, maybe I'm one of them, Paul doesn't say, just choose to love him. He says, change your attitude. This is now body. This is family. It's kind of like this. So a few months ago, uh, I had, um, I had uh, hanging out with my brothers and uh, their wives and they have kids. And we all got uh, dinner and then I, I decided that I'd sit down with my nephew and my niece. So Annie is five years old and Theo is six. I'm pretty sure those ages are right. And uh, sit down with, with our food, and it was a barbecue that night. So um, I sit down, and I've got my burger and some food on my plate. Now, Annie is already sitting down there, and she's got her burger in her hands. And she looks at me and says, I can eat my burger quicker than you. Now, first thought is, all right, let's do this. <laughs> you want to you wanna fight this? I'll do that, right? I can eat a burger quickly. And then, like, before I had the chance to make a, a, a decision about that, Theo then kind of looks in, and maybe it's because he was a year wiser, but he recognizes that he's not going to be able to compete in that. So he says to me, I've got more food on my plate than you. <laughs> Man, I'm like, okay, I got a little bit of food because I knew there were a lot of people here. Right, my first thought is, all right, let's do this. So Annie, I'm going to eat quicker than you, then I'm going to go get more food, and then I'm going to show you Theo, who's the real king of this house. Then something happened. I guess it was an epiphany from above. Wisdom came over me. Maybe it was laziness too, because I knew Annie would probably vomit and then Theo would cry. I don't know. But I had some wisdom and I thought, you know what, okay, I'm not going to enter into this. Even though I could, I'm not going to. And I said to them in a moment of sheer genius, you know what, guys, we don't actually have to compete because we're family. Which means, Annie, if you eat your burger, I'm going to cheer you on. And Theo, if you can eat all your food on your plate, I'm going to celebrate that as well. Because we all know that six-year-olds, I mean 99% of the time, don't eat the food on their plate. So I say to them, we're family, we don't have to get along. Now look, who knows whether that's going to sink in or not. Christmas rolls around, we'll probably do the same thing again. 
But you can kind of see the point there, can't you? Family is connected. We don't need to compete with each other because they are an extension of ourselves. Now look, I know that we live in a broken world with broken families. I understand that. Some of us come from broken homes. But the way it's meant to work is that family is actually meant to get along and look out for each other and cheer each other on and mourn with each other. No, I'm married to Elizabeth. If Elizabeth gets a job, I'm going to celebrate that job with her. And if she loses that job or loses something else, I'm going to mourn with her because that's what family does. If family's hungry, we feed them. If they're thirsty, we give them something to drink. If they're broke, we give them money. That's just what family is supposed to do. And that's what Paul is saying is now the church. Jesus has, hasn't just told us to feel love for each other. He hasn't just said, now you need to choose to love each other. No, he said, as you look around, God has not made different people coming together. No, no, he's made one, one group, one body, one family. And as you look around, these people now that you can't stand, or maybe you can, whatever, it doesn't matter, he says, because the people around you are an extension of yourself, their family. Now, when we can grasp this, it's, it's so practical. Right? Like, like seeing people as family gets at the heart of things like envy. Because right? you don't envy family when they get the job that you wanted or the promotion you wanted or, or, or they can experience some sort of thing that you wanted. It gets at the heart of jealousy and anger and selfishness because when we see each other as connected, as extensions of our body, as immediate family, it changes things changes everything. And this is what Paul is saying here, that God, he brought outsiders to himself. That's what God is doing in this world. That's God's purpose in this world. He is bringing people near. But then God is making a people and commissioning them and equipping them to encourage each other and to stir each other on and to be one people on about the purpose of God. See what God is doing in this world? You see how amazing this is? God gives people a hope who previously had no hope. God gives people meaning who previously had no meaning. God gives people a purpose who previously had no purpose. And he does this as he makes his people one people who have a purpose that is God's purpose in this world. That's why we are doing what we do here. That's why we meet together, because God is doing something amazing in this world. God is at work in this world. Now, now the question then is for us, okay, so if that's what our purpose is and our meaning is, if, that, if our purpose is God's purpose, if we're trying to bring people in, the question is not just how does it change us as a community, but how does it change us as individuals? What does it mean individually for me to grasp a hold that my meaning and my purpose is tied up in what God is doing in this world? It's funny... Um, Oh, interesting, I uh, stumbled across this quote in this leadership book the other day. And it, the book was speaking about how you can kind of get the most out of people in an organization or something like that. And he said this uh, in the book. This is what he said. One of the most powerful internal motivators on the planet is a sense of meaning and purpose. Throughout human history, people have risked life, security and wealth for something that is greater than themselves. People want a chance to take part in something meaningful and important. There is a deep human yearning to make a difference. Now, he's, he's not a Christian. 
I'm not aware of that. It's a secular book. And as you're kind of processing that, I mean, we actually do see this in organizations around the world, right? Even in places like sport as well, where, where people give more of themselves than we would ever give. Right? When people work 80 hours a week, when, when people are so committed to their sport or whatever else. I mean, one example as well is uh, Cooper Cronk, who's a rugby league player, just left Melbourne Storm at the top of his game. They won everything. Like It sounds like to everyone a perfect place to retire, but he's going to continue on next year. Now, when you look at people like that, you've got to ask the question, why are they doing that? Why would someone give 80 hours of themselves? Why would they do that and sacrifice life and security and wealth? Well, it's because they've tied up their sense of purpose and meaning in what they do. Right? Whether it is their work or their, there is their sport or whatever, their identity, it's tied up in that. Right? I mean, they give themselves to that because that's their purpose, that's their meaning. So, so the question for us is then, if we have a greater meaning than this and a greater sense of purpose, if what we're doing here is tied up with what God is doing here in the world, the God of the universe, if we have a chance to be a part of something eternal, what does that mean for us? Well, as we keep reading through Ephesians, Paul actually shows us. Paul actually shows us what it means for us. See, in verse, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. You hear what he's saying? He is a prisoner here. Paul's writing Ephesians with jail cells around him. He's writing from prison here. He says, I'm a prisoner for you. And then he goes on in verse 2. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God, uh, by the Spirit, to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members are together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm in prison because I'm telling you about the mystery that Gentiles, outsiders, can be brought in. Right? We, we just saw that in chapter 2. Then he goes on in verse 7. I became a servant, he says, of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages, was kept, uh, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Paul is saying he gave up life, security, and wealth to preach the message of Jesus. You see that, right? This is a man completely captivated by his sense of meaning and purpose that God has given him. That's why Paul does what he does. Right? In Philippians, he says to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's deeply convinced that his sense of meaning, of meaning is tied up in what God is doing in this world, so he preaches the message of Jesus. Now, here's a man sitting in jail writing this letter. Now, now, imagine this. So often we hear about people from the persecuted church right around the world who get put in prison for preaching Jesus. So, so let's pretend that this morning we get news of a pastor from Indonesia. A pastor from Indonesia uh, who is put in jail for preaching the message of Jesus. When you hear news like that, what are the first thoughts that you have? What feelings run through you? Maybe you're disheartened by that. Discouraged by that. 
Maybe something moves within you and you are saddened by that fact. And it feels like, you know what? God isn't winning in this world. And people keep stepping up and they keep getting jailed. Now, Paul's in prison. He's just been jailed for preaching about Jesus. This is where he sits. So what's he going to write to the church in Ephesians? What's he going to write to these churches? Is he going to say, be careful? Right? Don't speak about Jesus, because if you do, you're going to be put in jail. Is he going to say, watch out? Actually go into hiding? Hide the message of Jesus? Is that what he's going to say? Is he going to say, if you just keep doing what you're doing, you're going to be jailed for it. Be disheartened, be discouraged. No, as Paul writes his letter, actually we'll see it later on, he says, I ask you, do not be discouraged. Don't be discouraged by what's happened to me. So why can he say that? How can Paul say that from prison? I mean, this is a man who has lost life and security and wealth for the sake of the gospel. This is a man who's been shipwrecked and beaten. They've tried killing him twice. They've tried throwing stones at him. This is a man who has gone through it all, and now he sits alone in prison. How can he say, don't be discouraged? How can he say that? It's because he gets what God is doing in this world. And he knows that this is eternally worth giving up life and security and wealth for. That's what we see in verse 10. In verse 10, he says, God's intent was that now through the church, the wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. He says in verse 13, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Don't be discouraged by the fact that I've given up my whole life for this thing. Don't be discouraged by that fact because this is eternally worth it. It's eternally worth giving up your life and security and wealth for. You see, our purpose and our mission, our meaning is tied up in the fact that God is doing stuff in this world. He is bringing outsiders who have no hope and are without God and he's bringing them near and he's bringing outcasts into community and he's commissioning them to be on about the purpose of God. And this is an eternal purpose. This is eternally worth it. Paul says, I've given up everything for it and I'd do it again if I could. You see that? I mean, the, the thing is right now, our world still thinks what we're doing is pointless, has no meaning. But God, by his grace, shows us that actually there's nothing more meaningful. There is no greater purpose that you can be a part of. There is nothing more significant in your life than to be a part of what's going on here because our purpose is God's purpose. God is doing something in his church. He's bringing people in. Nothing's more significant than this. Right? I mean, the, the, the business leaders will say the, the greatest internal motivator is a sense of meaning, but we'd take that a step further and say, actually, it's God's sense of meaning. It's an eternal sense of meaning. And so when we think about what we're doing here, this is why we do what we do. Our purpose is God's purpose. Everything that we do here is driven by what God is doing in this world. It's why we rock up on a Sunday. It's why we aim for consistency, because we know that God is bringing people near. That's why we serve at Kids Church and Creche. 
That's why we serve on the welcoming team and the coffee team because we know that God is doing stuff in this world. He is bringing people near. That's why, we, that's why we do what we do. I mean, that's why there's playgroup on. As J.S. was speaking, that's why there's English for Life on because we're convinced that God is bringing people near and we see it happen. I mean, that's why we do Southside Youth. I don't know if you've thought about this, but there are six other leaders beside me who all have full-time jobs or part-time jobs and are studying. Why would anyone give up their Sunday avos and weekends throughout the year for this thing? It's because they're convinced that God is doing something in this world, and He is. Right? We, we heard it last week through Emily, who got up here and said three years ago she became a Christian. And, and going to youth has been the thing that has helped her keep going. Now, the thing is, you talk to any of us leaders, and I think Emily would be fine in me saying this, we've got eight other incredible stories just like it. God does stuff in this world. He brings people near. That's why we do what we do. We give up our lives and our security and our wealth for it. That's why we give to church. Because we know that there's actually nothing better than we can give our money to. No greater cause, no greater organization, no greater charity than getting on board with what God is doing in this world. And like we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks when we have our congregation meeting. We speak about finances and stuff like that. And, and we're going to see where we're at in terms of our budget and stuff like that. I mean, we design our budget to help us reach in, to help us do what God is doing here. But the thing is, I just want us to think about here, like if, if we actually grasp this and, and are giving to this, like there's so much potential here in church. I mean, we've got a kids worker, Bindi, who does two days a week. Can you imagine if we could employ her full time? How amazing would that be? We could do missions into our community through, through kids' programs. And this is what God's doing in this world. He's bringing people near, and we have a chance to be a part of this. And actually, what we see is that there's nothing more valuable, there's nothing more meaningful than you can give your life for. And when we grasp what God is doing in this world, when we grasp that our purpose is God's purpose, when we grasp that God in His love is bringing people near, it transforms and changes us. That's why Paul prays what he does in, at the end of chapter 3. That's why he prays that they would grasp the love, the, the height, the width, the depth of the love of God because he knows if people can grasp this, they'll give their whole lives for this. And we're the same. If we can grasp what God is doing here, it will transform us. See, we have a vision here at Southside. We want to reach people. We want God to bring people in. You know, we talk about it sometimes. We want 1% of our community to be saved. Let's just start there, and then when we get there, we'll, we'll, we'll up that a little bit. But 1% means that we're having three full church services here. Now, you might think that that's a big vision, but actually at the end of chapter 3, what we see is that God has a bigger vision for his church. Because as Paul closes in verse 20, he says, Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. God is doing stuff in this world. He is bringing people near. He's giving people who had no hope a hope, and he's using us in this. There's nothing more meaningful you could give your life to. There is nothing more significant because this is eternally significant. Now, we're going to close now and we're going to pray these words with Paul. I'll read them out uh, in verse 16. The encouragement, though, that I, I want to give you is to pray these words as well for yourself this week. 
that we might be a people captivated by what God is doing. Let's pray. God, we come before you as our Father, and we pray that out of your glorious riches, you may strengthen us with power through, through your Spirit in our inner beings, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that we may be rooted and established in love, that we may have power together with each other to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And God, we pray this to you who are able to do immeasurably more than all we ask, more than all we imagine. And we pray this to you according to your power that is at work within us. To you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.